You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 63. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, Wellness Insiders. I hope you're having a fabulous week. You hear a lot about resilience and restoration in our bodies these days, but do you know how to do this in your own life? What are some of the important questions to ask when you're trying to rebuild your health or to protect yourself from the future chronic illnesses? My today's guest has a lot of great wisdom on this topic. Her name is Dr. Mary Louise Bove. Dr. Bove has over 40 years of experience in herbal medicine and 25 years of working at her clinical practice, naturopathic family medicine and midwifery at the Brattleboro Naturopathic Clinic in Vermont. In her early days, Mary owned an herbal apothecary in Maine, later moving to Great Britain to study herbal medicine. Her path then took her to the Bastyr College of Natural Health Sciences in Seattle, Washington, where she received her doctorate in naturopathic medicine and with Wifery certification. Once a full-time faculty at the Bastyr University, Dr. Bove chaired departments of botanical medicine and naturopathic midwifery. In 2014, when Dr. Bove closed her naturopathic clinic, she became a director of medical education for the prominent herbal company Gaia Herbs. Mary is the author of the Encyclopedia of Natural Healing for Children and Infants, considered an authoritative reference on natural pediatric medicine. She has authored or co-authored number of publications in magazines, journals, and collaborative books on botanical and naturopathic medicine. Mary lectures and teaches internationally on the topics of naturopathic medicine, botanical medicine, pediatrics, natural pregnancy, childbirth, traditional food medicine, and mind-body healing. In collaboration with Gaia Herbs, Dr. Bove developed an herbal remedy line designed specifically for children. By the end of today's episode... We'll explore a number of useful recommendations for restoring your health and creating a happier life in general. As always, you can find links and additional information in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 63. Enjoy. Good morning, Mary. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here. I am so humbled and so privileged to have you uh, talk to me because you're someone that I admire and respect and love. And I know that there are so many people around you that share the sentiment. I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about your, your journey, how you started. Um, when you were young, I know you had herbal apothecary and then you decided to study herbs. Tell us how it all began. 
Yeah, so I just love, you know, looking back at my journey because it wasn't anything that I was intending. I never intended to be a herbalist, but I came to read a book by Juliet Barcelli-Levy and realized that I had a calling. And also looking back, my mom was always interested in the garden and scents. And we had a rose petal jar in our living room that we would inoculate with frankincense or myrrh or rose oil each year. And I was fascinated with that. And so then in college, I found myself reading this book and really being drawn to the power of plants and the relationship of plants. And I'd always loved nature. So I started looking and looking around to what did we have, you know, in North America for herbal studies. And I found some writings and I found the American um, Society of Herbs, but I didn't find health. And it took me a little while. And finally, I found a school up in Vancouver, um, BC, that offered a correspondence with some in-house teaching under Norma Myers. Mm-hmm. And I set myself after graduation in 1977, I sent myself out to the Northwest and went to a, a week-long seminar with herbalists like Michael Tierra and um, Mindy Green and Rosemary Gladstar and Ed Smith. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, there's a world of herbs and there's a way that you can actually um, do that. And so mm-hmm. that started my journey. I came back to uh, the East Coast in Portland, Maine, I opened a small shop called Hippocrates Herbarium mm-hmm. and had that for a few years and educated myself in a variety of ways. And in the shop one day came an English woman and she told me about the school in England that trained medical herbalists. And I just like, I could just see my dreams blowing up mm. and I was fascinated and I started to fantasize, could I go? And in 1980, I did. I went to England and I studied with for four years in the School of Phytotherapy. And one of the things that was so delightful was the fact that everybody in my class, 28 students, all they wanted to do was learn about herbs. So it's all what we wanted to talk about and experiment with and go out and look at. And so I had a very, very curious, innovative class to study with in my four years in England. And so that gave me my prep. And I, after four years, I had to come back to the United States. So I was looking for a way that I could practice with a somewhat of a legal fashion here in the United States. And that brought me to naturopathy. And I did um, two more years advanced standing in naturopathy at John Bastier and was able to get my ND degree. And under that, that really allowed me to practice as a clinical herbalist and a naturopathic physician. And it's always interesting because I was then really um, clear that I wanted to be a medical herbalist. And along my naturopathic education, I stumbled on the fact that I also wanted to be a home birth midwife. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful blending to blend herbs with midwifery. And midwives have used herbs in a particular way for thousands of years. And so it was really... um, a good match for me. And I had had home birth myself in England and had had troubles where I was challenged and needed to use plants during pregnancy and postpartum mm-hmm. and really felt like that would be a, a an asset to women if I could um, start to work in that, that area as well. Um, and so that brought me to clinical practice. I had a clinical practice in Seattle, did birthing and 
worked at a birth center and in 1993 bought a small practice in Brattleboro, Vermont. And I was very much wanting to come back to the East Coast. And I set up, I bought this practice and it was like August 16th, 1993. I mm. pulled in there and, and started my clinical practice. And there I worked for 25 years doing general family medicine and home birthing. And my primary modality was herbs. Um, and it was really great. To, it was so inspiring to see them come alive and to, to start to take what you've learned in books um, and see, yeah, this is working, or no, it isn't, or maybe I need to tweak it, or there's a certain application if it's an acute uh, illness versus a, a, a more chronic problem. Or, and it, it just really helped me see some of the subtleties and the nuances that you can use in the art of working with herbs. And that, that was, to me, like, that really was when my learning started, when I could see how they interfaced with people and not just in physiological ways, but also in that energetic way and, and, uh, you know, a spiritual way. So I really feel that that plants um, give that opportunity to human beings to help us feel comfortable, to, you know, improve our energy, to improve our physiology and to help us, you know, on, on a more etherical level. That's fascinating. So there are so many different things that you have done. And so what I wanted to ask you is how all these things um, affected or helped you to develop a philosophy of what good medicine is? Yes, that is a really, really big question. And I think it, you know, is a question that can't, you know, over time, it does develop, you begin to see, you know, and I think one of the, things, the hard lessons for me was is that good medicine doesn't necessarily mean that you're curing or resolving disease. Mm-hmm. Good medicine is about, you know, how you assist the person through their challenges and, and their quality of life and helping them to make those decisions. And so that would, and it, it means that you have to kind of step aside from some of your own personal choices that, you know, for instance, maybe good medicine for a 16-year-old teenage girl who's just becoming sexually active is to tell her she needs to be on oral birth control because she doesn't have the, the responsibility and the behaviors to commit to using a barrier. And you know that even though as a doctor, I prefer not to use an oral birth control, but for this client, it's, it's good medicine and mm-hmm. it's checking in with them each year after that to see, is this still the best way for them to be? Um, choosing their birth control, and it may shift as they mature. And so I think getting out of, the, of your own way, not putting your own ideas in there, really hearing what the person needs, trying to help them make decisions for quality of life and good care, and helping them to see that, you know, there isn't just one pill out there. I, I, I used to keep on my desk um, a big capsule. It was six inches. It looked like a big gelatin capsule. It was purple. Mm-hmm. It was six inches long and you could take it apart. My father was a medical doctor and he got it at a medical conference and gave it to me. And I used to keep it on my desk. And when my clients would come in and you could tell that they were really in that space where they're just looking for the magic pill, just give it to me. I would take that out and I would give it to them. And I'd say, here you go, put whatever you want in there for your mm-hmm. magic pill. Mm-hmm. You make your magic pill. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the skill as the physician is to help 
um, the patient recognize that they have a lot of their healing information. You just need to access it. One more thing about good medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, and I learned this over time, is is that you have to be flexible. I mean, we talk about individuality, like, you know, we're looking to have an individual plan for someone or specific herbal formula. And I think having that flexibility to see that maybe, you know, your first line of choice of herbs in the formula isn't working the way you expected. It's okay to change that. And I think sometimes physicians feel like they really have to get it right the first time. Um, And it's not about that, you know. And I think the relationship that you create with the patient is part of what makes um, the physician to be able to assist the patient well. Um, So I do think it's important to be flexible and it's important to be kind to yourself as the physician um, because it is, it's it's a lot of responsibility and yet at the same time, when you see someone start to flourish in their health and, and work on their goals and see them attain them in their life, it is exhilarating. That is so wonderful. You always inspire your patients to take their health very seriously and to be very autonomous, to learn how to take good care of themselves. And so from that perspective, once again, I remember one of the workshops that you did before um, that you were talking a lot about using herbs that you are surrounded by, whether it is something that you grow in your own garden or something that you buy on the at the farmer's market and how to utilize these things as medicine. So you're not necessarily relying 100% on something that is uh, prescribed to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and that's kind of my belief that um, health is about every single day. And we go out and use our body every single day, you know, to breathe and to walk and to do what we do in our 24-hour day. And, you know, just like our car needs a tune-up, so does the body. And I don't, I really believe that each night when we go to sleep, we do restoration in our mental and physical body. And I think every day in the food we eat and the way we interface with nature and our environment and people is part of our medicine. And so to me, waiting to use herbs when I'm sick doesn't make sense to me. It's like, why not using, why am I not using plants that are plants that are, uh, you know, very well suited for daily use. So they should be in my herbal salad. They can go in my dressing, you know, salad dressings. They can be used on the stove to scent my air. And all these things make a difference. And they're not like one thing that's going to change or be, you know, make a big bang. It's about having the essence regularly. So drinking your herbal teas. But if you're going out and looking at the plant and harvesting the plant and smelling it or noticing the texture, that too is a medicine and because that's coming through our senses. So I feel like using plants to elicit our senses through flavor, through smell, through the delight of color. I really believe that, you know, having flowers in your house will uplift your mood. I spend money every week when I go to the grocery store for flowers and they really make me happy when I put them around my house. Um, and I do that in the summer with my herbs. And I think if, you know, you have herbal syrups and teas and butters and pestos that you regularly use in your diet, that's wellness. Um, And so to me, I always have felt that you should walk your talk. And so it's like not about me standing up in front and 
giving a workshop and saying, use herbs in all these ways, but not doing it myself. And so I really felt like it was important for me to to do this, that, that that's the life I was choosing. And when I talk about it to people, to really come from that essence of, yes, you can do this. And when I look back at it, I'm 64 years old this year. When I look back at it, I've made my livelihood from herbs since I was uh, 21 years old. Um, that's been my main, whether it's teaching or having a clinic or um, writing about it, but herbs have been that. And it's because they've been in my bathroom and in my kitchen and out in my garden for many years. And as a young doctor going to naturopathic school, I really felt it was important that to prescribe a herb to someone, I should know what that's like. Mm-hmm. And when I got to naturopathic school, one thing that happened was that I went into the herbal dispensary and worked a shift with the clinicians. And there was a fourth year clinician who was very well known and she was quite up at the top of her class. And she came in and she asked for 10 mils of Zampoxyl and prickly ash. And I thought to myself, my, my hairs went up. And I thought, what is she going to do with 10 mils in a clinical room with a patient? So I asked, what are you doing with 10 mils of Xanthoxylum? And she said, I'm going to do a bitter challenge test, which meant she was going to give the patient 10 mils of Xanthoxylum in one dose and then measure her pH in her stomach. And I thought, you've got to be kidding. 10 mils of Xanthoxylum is going to send that patient to the floor. So I told her, no, I won't prescribe this. I won't let this be dispensed out of the pharmacy until you come in here and try it yourself. And lo and behold, she did. And she was, you know, a fairly good sized woman and she hit the floor and she was spitting and gagging and her eyes were watering for a good five or 10 minutes. And she got exactly what I meant and did well and give that to the patient. We would have had an issue if that had been. And so again, that's just a good story that tells us, know what you're giving, you know, Taste it, know the effects of it, don't give something that you're not familiar with. And if you're using plants on a regular basis in your life, you're going to be familiar with lots of plants. I really love the story, but I also love the message because I think um, uh, when I started studying herbs, and I repeat this uh, from time to time uh, in my interviews, that I started studying the monographs and started uh, with the book studies. And so reading what other people are writing. And so all of this was very exciting. But you are so right. Until you start trying and until you start tasting, you really don't know what you're dealing with. And so... Yesterday, I uh, began a new semester, and so I uh, teach one of the classes for pharmacy students. One of their assignments throughout the entire semester is going to purchase some herbs from an herbal distributor. And so they are going to do these exercises where they are making a tea, or they are making a syrup, or they are making an oil, or they are making different things. And I think until I started using this exercise with my students, they were absolutely panically afraid of herbs because everything that you see in the media is like, oh, there are interactions or there are, you know, what is the safety profile? But until you start thinking, okay, you're just drinking a chamomile tea or you're drinking a peppermint tea or some of these things have been with us for centuries. And then once again, uh, the story that you told us with the prickly ash, that if you are uh, taking a lot more of it, you really need to know how it's going to affect the body. So 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great point about the students, getting them to do some hands-on with the herbs, because I think a lot of times from books, because we dissect, you know, the plant down to its chemical compounds, we often, you know, assume that it's going to have that same kind of velocity in the way that it works. Mm-hmm. And then we recognize, oh, you know, having peppermint tea is so different than having peppermint oil in a capsule. And I think recognizing there are plant-friendly ways. And one of the things that I really love that's happening with science right now is that science is looking at traditional ways. So we're beginning to see, for instance, that the aroma of mint and lemon balm helps demented clients get better sleep when sprayed on their linens at night. Now, that's not even taking it internally, but it's a, a great way. And many, many people who are kind of skeptical or aren't, you know, comfortable with using herbs would start with a linen spray and they may notice that my sleep is better. And then that might open the door and they'll say, wow, there are ways I can use the, these plants in my life. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I always love and enjoy the fact that you bring science and you make it so much easier for our students to actually to incorporate in daily, on a daily basis, seeing how these different botanicals and these different plants can be used and that science indeed does support this. Something that Mm -hmm. you have mentioned uh, a little while ago is that um, every night when we go to sleep, we regenerate or we restore or we fix our body in one way or another. I know that all your teachings uh, talk about how important it is to get a good night's sleep. But I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit more about this restoration. We live in a very busy society, and so a lot of us experience symptoms of being overwhelmed and tired and exhausted. And I wanted to ask your thoughts on this. Are there stories that you can share with us, whether from your patients or any other ones, that bring this idea of paying more attention to your body and paying more attention to how to restore it that it's an important story for us to hear and to really uh, try to work with. It is. It, it's, it so is. And I think for me, in, you know, starting uh, in clinical practice and, and naturopathic medicine in the early 90s and coming through the 90s and 2000s, um, in that time, we started seeing more information about the effects of stress and physiology and, the, and, and in health and what that meant. And, and all of a sudden, that was a conversation that needed to happen with patients. It was not a conversation that was typically in the medical room. And so you begin to talk about restoration and resilience and how people understand how, you know, by skipping meals or not getting enough sleep, that actually will create a physiological response in the body, whether it disrupts metabolism in the thyroid gland or the endocrine system or the glucose regulation, we know that that's back now. And I I, I think it's taken people, particularly people who are educated on, you know, there's a one cause for illness and one pill to change it, to get that idea that it's a bigger piece and that we contribute to health and that we can actually be down the path towards uh, chronic disease at age 50, but we're starting that in our 30s. So a lot of times women who have bone challenges, those bone challenges start in their 30s, but they don't have signs that they have osteopenia until they're in their 50s. And yet 
that understanding of, of that effect. And I think for me, I watched that. I would often see people who are, you know, overstressed, doing too much, burning the candle at both ends. And that was, I could see that it was contributing to their health picture, but I didn't have the words or the tools to be able to make the connections for people, but I could see it in my intuitive self. And so talking to people about all of the things that contribute to that kind of wellness plate that is their day-to-day. And then it, it eats and it builds up. And so we see people, you know, finding that those stressful times, you know, tend to create patterns. And so what happens is that we get in that wheel of life and we think, okay, well, I won't eat meat and that will be a healthy thing and then that will be okay, but we don't necessarily get enough sleep or we don't necessarily get outside or we don't necessarily, you know, remove toxic exposures. And so I think looking at all of those, and for me, in working with my patients, I began to see why all of those things were connected and how it would be so important for that underlying energy to change in order for healing to take place. And a good example would be women who would come with fertility issues. And I would find that, you know, often there's, you know, things were pretty good in their hormones, but we in their sex hormones, but we would see issues in their adrenal hormones that were interfering with their estrogen and progesterones. And it was like then having to talk about how do we manage stress to change the endocrine picture to then support fertility. And, and, and many of the times those women would be like, but I eat a good diet and I do this and I do that. And it'd be like, yes, you do. And those things are great. And we have to look at how do we restore and sleep is part of a restoration process and sleep at night, um, that night circadian cycle, the day night cycle, which is something that we don't honor as much because we have artificial lighting. So a lot of people are, you know, up until midnight with under artificial lighting and they don't get the natural cycles that tell us to wind down. And part of that is restoring. And if every day we can restore back to neutral, it's a better place to start from than starting from a place where we're already wound up and stressed. Um, And it does, it eats into our fertility, it eats into inflammation and how chronic disease, our energy, how we think, Um, you know, and I can, I can stay on a personal um, basis that when we were talking about all the different things that I did and as a, 30-year-old, I was a single mom, and I ran this business. I had other doctors in my business. I went to medical school and um, did home birthing uh, and, you know, took the responsibility as a clinician for all of these patients, and it was great. Back then, there weren't a lot of naturopaths or clinical herbalists, so we did everything. We had to be the authors and the speakers and out doing it, and yet that caught up to me. And after about 25 years of that, it caught up to me and I began to see. I thought having Tuesdays off, working a four-day week, um, getting out in the woods each week, I thought all those things of doing my yoga, all those things were keeping me healthy. And then all of a sudden, you know, that one day I realized I wasn't. I realized, wow, this caught up to me and I have adrenal fatigue. In fact, I have adrenal exhaustion and it put me on the couch for several weeks where I didn't function well. And how things I noticed was, you know, wow, you've gone for several years on five hours of sleep. You, you know, you tend to you not always eat your lunch because you're too busy in the clinic. 
And I, be, and I really stepped back and I thought all the things that you thought you were doing that were healthy, you know, might have been, but you weren't taking care of restoration and, you know, exposure and those types of things that accumulate. And so for me, it, it really led me to that place of looking, okay, it's not just about what I put in my body. It's how I think. It's what I do to make me happy every day. It's taking the time not to get caught up in the shoulds and the what ifs. And it, it's learning how to sit. I, I grew up as in, a, in an Italian family that was a work family. And so sitting was like equated with laziness. But really what I had to learn was sitting was about getting quiet inside yourself. And that was a part of healing. And so going into nature um, was helpful. And so I had to make some hard choices. I had to leave clinical practice because I knew it was really not good for my health anymore. And that I needed to take a step back and see what things fed me in, in my work in herbs. Um, and those are the things that I, I wanted to work with. So education and writing and doing podcasts like this are really um, feeding me these days. And I, and I find it invigorating, whereas clinical practice had gotten to the point where it was weighing down on me. And I had to say to myself, okay, 25 years is good. You did a, good, a long time. You have many patients that you helped, and now it's time for you to make a choice for yourself, which isn't always easy for a, a healthcare practitioner to choose to, uh, you know, make choices for themselves and say no to their patients. And that was hard. I had to say no to my patients as I closed my practice um, and help find places for them to be. But the whole time I was saying yes to another part of me, which was sharing my information with the public through education. Thank you so much for sharing this story. And I think it's especially important because it reminds us that even someone who knows what you're supposed to be doing and how to have this healthy and balanced lifestyle, that even if you have the best intentions, that it sometimes it does catch up with you. But let me ask you, if someone who is listening to you right now is thinking, okay, I think I'm a little too tired. The The idea of spending few weeks on the couch does resonate with me. How would you encourage someone to start thinking about this? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I think first, the first thing to do is to just be an observer and for a few days to observe your patterns. How are you eating? What's your energy patterns like? How are you thinking? What's your mood? What's your sleep patterns? How do you wake up? Do you wake up with good energy? Do you wake up, you know, um, excited about something in the day? Uh, so I would, I would say be the observer for a few days and watch, watch, you know, um, your life patterns in that way. And then start to look at, okay, I'm going to choose three of those things. I'm going to choose to eat three meals daily to, you know, get, seven or eight hours of sleep and to get out into nature with a walk or something for 30 minutes every day. So start with, with things that are attainable that you can do and that, that once they've been, you've done that for a week or two, they're kind of in your fabric a little bit more and it gives you more energy that, to look at other things, which might be, you know, taking a food out or trying a new food or maybe looking at an adaptogen plant. Maybe you'll say, well, I'd like to use holy basil or ashwagandha as an adaptogen plant mm -hmm. that helps to protect me from the effects of stress because I can see I have stress in my life 
and it's starting to get under my skin because I'm my energy is compromised. So by using something like, you know, holy basil tea at night to improve your sleep or ashwagandha during the day to improve your mood, that might well help to take that angst off the body. And ashwagandha is a really great restorative herb. So mm-hmm. at night, using ashwagandha and holy basil together can really help to restore ourselves. And we tend to restore our physical body between 10 and 2 and we restore our psychological body between two and four. So it's really important we're asleep-like and, and ready to do that, not going to bed at midnight in the middle of a time when we should already be in that process. So I do encourage, you know, people to find regular bedtime um, and start that way. And then also not to be isolated. So I think getting out in community or reaching to friends or family that too will help us in times of stress because they can help us see, oh, gee, you know, you're not, you haven't gone and done this activity for three weeks and so you're stressed out. It can help us in kind of mirroring some things that we're not seeing about ourselves. So as you said, we can have the best intentions, but it's easy to get caught up in our routine. So these are so important. Thank you. And I think that the reminder of that there, is, there are these time increments from 10 uh, to 2 and 2 to 4, hearing them is very important. Um, and I have to say, I have to admit that sometimes I have trouble getting to bed early enough as well. You have to get into habit of doing something uh, like this in order for it to feel comfortable and to feel good. The fact that Sometimes people cannot get to bed early enough is connected with technology. And you mentioned this earlier. Um, this is, it's an, it's been an interesting few months for me because I keep hearing and I keep seeing different things, whether it's studies that are coming out, whether I have conversations with people that are talking about it, how technology is actually affecting us negatively in terms of preventing us from going to sleep early enough or preventing you because you have a source of entertainment. You might not be looking out to go into a community and spend that time uh, having fun and enjoying your friends, but maybe you are watching Netflix or something like this. What are your thoughts on this? Yes, I I totally um, think that there's an impact there for a couple of different reasons. I think one, some of it has to do with the blue light and the overexposure of blue light, and particularly in the evening, Mm -hmm. that kind of light is affecting our pituitary pineal system and our pituitary gland is, you know, partly regulating our 24-hour circadian day-night cycle, and we're disrupting that, and that will be felt in our day cycle. So if we disrupt our night cycle with light and excessive light in our bedroom, that will actually affect the way we function during the day. I also feel that, um, you know, as you said about, like, the social contact, you know, is that it's fine to do things at home and but it's also really important for social contact because that um, actually cultivates other kinds of mind function and social skills, uh, interactive skills, and ability to understand, you know, proper behavior within social settings. And those have all been shown with studies. As well as, you know, technology is a quick-acting thing and it cultivates a lot of quick-acting response in the user, mm-hmm. but it doesn't always help cultivate good focus and long-term intention and goal and 
following through. And I know that in the studies, they've been able to show that older people have a lot of those techniques because they didn't start on devices early on and they cultivated that kind of thinking and taking that process through um, a, a longer period of time. Um, so I do think that there is impact there for um, health, but even more so for sleep. And I know that we recognize that because there's an ICD code for computer device insomnia when wow. somebody has, you know, sleeping. And I, and I think the, the biggest thing is to get them out of the bedrooms and to get them away from children. And there was a really great story of six um, students in England, high school students, mm-hmm. who started to ask that question of what is a cell phone doing to us um, at night when we sleep? And so they, they did this study because this was an experiment because they felt like almost all their classmates had their phone within an arm's reach of their bed. They wanted to know what that, what effects were happening. And they did a step, they did a little experiment with six different households where they sprouted watercress seeds, which is something they do in England um, quite regularly. And um, they sprouted the seeds and they all had great germination. And then they did a second sprouting next to the phone and the same seeds that germinated well away from the phone did not germinate well. So they had very poor germination. And they showed that at all six houses. And a group of scientists, of course, picked that up and started to do a more, um, you know, um, proper study on that. But it really left me in a, like a state of like, wow, we, you know, we don't, we don't feel it. We don't see it. So we don't even know it. And what's really interesting is my son just sent me an article um, about how they restrict the use of cell phones for children who have had surgeries and, and uh, cancers during cancer treatment because it interferes with the healing of the body. So they restrict it in the first 24 hours post the surgery. This is really fascinating. It's hard to wrap your mind around it a little bit because they are just so much part of the society and part of the culture. And so how do you remove some of these? So you mentioned that remove it from your bedroom. Do not let children to use them as consistently or as much, I guess. Anything else that you can think of? Yeah, and I think, you know being able to turn it off sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and I tell women, don't put it in your pocket. And men too, don't put it in your pocket in the front around your genital areas. It does interfere with fertility, both for men and women, you know, get it away from the pelvis area mm-hmm. and use an earbud. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can, what's also interesting is, is I think sometimes we forget to think about how other kinds of mammals might be affected, but they have shown mm-hmm. that, you know, cell phone frequencies disrupt a number of behavioral aspects for animals, mammals. Mm-hmm. Um, and now with some of the, you know, the bigger G networks that they're moving towards, some of those frequencies work on the same frequencies as whales and birds, and that's really cause, causing havoc for our natural wildlife. Right. And that's that's pretty scary. So um, I want to take a step back. You mentioned something just a few minutes ago when we communicate with our friends, with our family, when we have social gatherings, that there are certain things in our physiology that actually help us to retain things better or to boost our cognition, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's a great question because you're talking about like being with people and 
and uh, boosting like memory or focus. And Mm -hmm. when we make memories, you know, we use different parts of our brain. So it's not all just one area of the brain that's doing all the work and making the memory. So we have to have like that encoding where we're starting it, then it goes into our memory and then we retrieve it. And and that encoding has a lot to do with what's going on in the environment. So who's there, how you're feeling, what kind of sensory types of aspects are going on. Um, and, and so so I, I do think, I think being out with people where you have sensory uh, stimulation from a variety of different senses gives us more of a structure to put our memory into, which then allows us to be able to retrieve it and use it better. And I think with cognition, you know, short-term memory is just a few minutes. And when we want to be able to be functioning, you know, well with our cognitive function, maybe we're writing or working on a project, we not only, we, we not only you know, want to be able to, you know, know that those memories are there, but we want to be able to retrieve them. And that, you know, takes a certain activity and that takes energy in the brain. And so I think one of the things about cognition, people think, oh, I want to be sharp. So being sharp means you got to have good oxygen going to the brain. And so exercise helps with that and certain types of, you know, um, circulatory plants help with that. You have to have good blood supply uh, going to the brain and, and you got to have good calories. And the brain uses a lot of calories. And I think people often forget that when they're not feeding themselves well, they're not feeding their brain function well, and that that they're going to notice that and how the brain performs. Um, And and so to me, I think, I think um, being with people and being with people who are different from us uh, or may do something differently, and maybe they speak a different language and hear a different language, or they're reading a kind of book you might not have read or listening to a kind of music, that diversity helps our brain. Our brain likes to be stretched. So it really is a good idea to exercise our brain. And just doing that on the computer is limiting. And I think that's why we have relationships and we have social uh, gatherings. I so much love this message and this idea. I realize, at least in my own personal life, is that when I see friends and family, I just feel happier. And so in addition to the fact that it is helping you in terms of your cognition and well-being, it also just makes you simply happy and giddy. So thank you for that. Exactly. And that happiness, we know that five minutes of happiness boosts the immune system in an amazing way. And so it's like, yeah, I think when you see another face smiling, you smile. And Mm -hmm. that actually is an internal, you know, kind of ray of wellness that you give yourself. That is wonderful. Thank you. So, uh, Mary, I have a few more questions for you. So one of them is we have been talking about a variety of different topics, but in general, someone who is listening to this episode of the podcast, are there certain resources that you can recommend to them, whether it is books, whether it is places to purchase herbs, whether it is websites, whether it is places to explore around you that stand out for you and hopefully make someone to take this next step uh, in healing and feeling better in getting their life a little bit more balanced? Yeah, I think there are lots of resources. And as we've been talking about, you know, the internet provides a lot of that. Some are great and some are not 
you know, as great as others. And I think it's important to make sure we have good, reliable sources and uh, the American Herbalist Guild and um, a number of the organizations, small organizations, give out webinars and give information. Mm -hmm. But I think also looking into our local community in the sense that we now have a lot of community herbalists and a lot of uh, local businesses where we see small herb shops and um, small herb schools in our, our local area. Um, and I think that's a great place to start. Reach out and see some of those people at the farmer's market, at a local herb day that's happening in your area, and then you'll connect with other people. And many times they're doing study groups or um, offering small classes. Um, and that that really can make a huge difference, I think. Um, also, sometimes we get caught in the web and we forget about books mm-hmm. and we forget about magazines. And there's a wonderful magazine called the um, Herb Quarterly, and that comes out four times a year. Okay. It's got articles about health, articles about things you can do at home, things in your garden. Um, and it's just like it, it's a great way to just like bring herbs into your life and give you a choice of you know, um, multiple ways to use it. Um, and and then I also think, you know, blogging, and I wish I could just say that, you know, this blogger or that blogger, and I'm just not good at remembering Mm -hmm. those kinds of things, but I do find myself, you know, reading different blogs. There's a, the International School of Herbal, the International School of Herbal Studies is a, Mm -hmm. is an online school, and they offer a variety of wonderful courses, and they have, they have, um, faculty from all over the world and they have three or four bloggers on their site and then there's a site called uh roses rishi and roses or roses and rishi okay and it's a great site on medicinal mushrooms and with really nice information and recipes and suggestions that way that's wonderful i'll definitely take a look at them and uh some of the sources that you have mentioned i will definitely include them in the show notes so mary you talked to us a little bit about how your life has changed. And I know that uh, right now you're working as a medical director for Gaia Herbs. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I know that the company um, and through the company, you do a lot of uh, herbal education. And so as we're coming to an end of this conversation, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about how people can learn more about you and what's more important, continue to learning more from you. Much to my chagrin, I would like to say I keep a website, but I've just not been good at that, and I'm not a big Facebook user. So right. it's on my agenda to start an Instagram thing, and my I'm working towards being educated at that. So okay. I'm hoping to reach out a wee bit more. I do. You do. You can find my presence on Gaia okay. Herbs and the GaiaHerb.com website um, has links to blogs I've written and articles as, mm-hmm. as well as some other people at the company. We have numerous herbalists that work at the company. I do go out and speak in the professional conferences, uh, Medicines for the Earth and the Southwest Conference for Botanical Medicine, mm-hmm. as well as naturopathic conferences. And my last question for you, as we are parting, I want to ask you if you have any words of wisdom to leave our audience with, maybe something that they should Think a little bit more about, based on our discussion, or maybe a place that they could start their own healing journey, anything that makes sense to you. Yeah, I would certainly, you know, say 
take a moment and, you know, and truly ask yourself if you're happy with your life and you're happy with your health. And then, you know, really, truly answer that question truthfully. And then, and then to say to yourself, well, then, you know, my goal is to shift that or to, you know, change that. And I think being honest with ourselves allows is the first step. And that then to put out, you know, that you will be able to connect or those things come into your life. And I think that's an important piece is to recognize that um, things show up in different ways. So whether that's a person or a book or a program that you see, but to be open to finding that happiness, you know. Um, And I remember working with terminally ill cancer clients and that's what we were working with was like that you know, day-to-day happiness and taking the focus away from the fact that they were terminally ill Mm -hmm. and that today was a happy day. And I Mm -hmm. think if we can do that as well, people, you know, and if you can say, yeah, I'm so happy 99% of the time. I remember once a a, a woman coming up to me after class and saying to me, I've watched you all weekend and you're constantly smiling. (laughs) What is it? And I said, I said, it's because I feel good about what I do and Mm. what I'm sharing with people. And that makes me happy. And and I think to to me, I think if we're happy, then that's a, that's a a recipe for wellness in our bodies. Thank you so much. Thank you for bringing a little bit more happiness into our lives. Thank you. And thank, Thank you. And thank you for doing this podcast and doing it and allowing the public to hear these conversations. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Mary Bove. You can find all the resources mentioned during the interview in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 63. Please subscribe to the show to get the future episodes automatically downloaded on your device. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcast. This is the best way to help others learn about the Wellness Insider Network, and it also helps to bring wonderful guests to join us here. This episode is proudly brought to you by the American Herbalist Guild. I've been a member of this organization for many years. Every fall, I attend HG Symposium, a great gathering of like-minded herbalists, where I always learn something new and exciting and network with others. Through this podcast, you've met many of the practicing members of the American Herbalist Guild. Professional members of this organization are recognized practitioners who have demonstrated to their peers their knowledge and expertise in the field of herbal medicine. General members continue to enhance their education by reading the Journal of American Herbalist Guild, their monthly member newsletters, having free access to webinar archives, an amazing archive of symposium lecture recordings, and so much more. Additionally, each member gets discount and offers on products, services, and tickets from some of the best herbal suppliers, schools, and companies. Check out the show notes or wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash HG and learn more about this great organization. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you. Mm-hmm.